This is Anthems. Hey everyone, my name's Coco Khan. I'm a columnist for The Guardian, a journalist and an author writing short comedies about young misfit women of colour. I'm based in London and your word for today is comfort. Hello there. Are you sitting comfortably? I hope so, because I'm going to start right from the beginning. Back before East London was the gentrified centre of cool and commerce it is today, back when it was just a good old-fashioned public health concern, I lived there with my family in a council house off an A road. We were tenants on a street where most people had bought their council house and we were some of the only non-white people around, although my school was much more mixed. At school, the white people were a minority, which was hilarious then and is hilarious now. I mention this because, from a really young age, I felt like an outsider. I felt like people looked down on me, whether it was because we were poor or because we were ethnic, or when it came to the other Asians at school, because we were shameful. I'm illegitimate. My dad disappeared when I was a baby. I wasn't the sort of girl that good Asian families wanted their kids hanging out with. And because my mum was working all the time, trying to make ends meet, I didn't speak her language, I only learned English, I wasn't very religious, etc, etc. Things at home were tough as well. You know, there was a lot of mental health issues, bad people in and out, poverty, trauma, basically. It was a lot growing up. It really was. So, anyway, as long as I can remember, I have been mimicking others. I talk differently depending on who I'm talking to. Even now, say I'm talking to my friends from school, my voice will change. I might start chatting a little bit more like how I am now, do you know what I mean? Also because of the context in it, chatting to my girls normally means cotching at someone's house, getting a bottle, chatting breeze, or maybe if I'm out and about in the manor, suddenly everyone's my friend and it's all, all right, mate, how are you? Yes, bruv, what's going on? But if I'm in the workplace, I might talk a little bit more like this. When I'm talking to someone as a representative of the media industry or to someone who is middle class, I know that when I ask for a bottle of water, I must say the teas. I should always say my teas. And sometimes I might even get confused and use my posh voice when I'm talking slang. It is surprisingly impactful to pronounce the teas when announcing that someone else is butters. Only joking, I never get confused. It is seamless for me going into the different voices. I don't even know I'm doing it. I also don't know what my real voice is or if I even have one. That's kind of concerning, but I'm not alone in this. Apparently, it's called the chameleon effect. It's defined as non-conscious mimicry. We do it in order to put other people at ease, to bond with others and feel safe in the interactions. And all I wanted growing up was to feel safe. I wanted someone to protect me. And so that's where it all started, I think. I learned that if I make others feel comfortable, they'd support me and they'd be there for me. But if only it were that simple. Because the thing about comfort, feeling comfortable, being comforted, is that sometimes our own individual needs for comfort jostle up against each other. And whose comfort tends to be prioritised tends to follow lines of privilege and power. So not telling your boss that when he squeezed you on the shoulder, it made you feel vulnerable because it's awkward. Maybe it'll make him feel weird and he'll be mean to you after. That's a classic example. And you tell yourself, oh, well, you can just live with that level of discomfort, that little squeeze on the shoulder. It's fine. So for me, making others feel comfortable meant going to a middle class dinner party, for example, 
and having to just sit through people talking about chavs or a boyfriend's family wanting to talk to me about ISIS. And it meant watching other peers get paid more, privately educated white men getting more opportunities because to point out that it always goes to the same people, those opportunities, well, it might mark you out as a troublemaker. They might say that I make them uncomfortable. So I remember a time when some dude was like properly sexually harassing me in a bar, like chirpsing to the point of demented. He literally came and sat uninvited at my table to tell me how much he loves Indian women. And he did the head wobble, can I just say. And when I spurned his advances, he started to get quite angry, really red in the face. And I did everything I could to deaccelerate it. And that meant, as we often do as women, smiling and laughing and trying to be sweet. And eventually, when he left the table, I confronted my friends. They were mostly white, although some of them were women. And I asked, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you help me or call me to the bar or call me outside or ask to go to the loo or something? And all the friends just squirmed and they made excuses. And eventually, they even got annoyed at me for making it into a big deal, which I found very annoying. Surely, I decided it was a big deal. And let me tell you, I was genuinely really quite scared. But ultimately, it just boiled down to the fact that the whole thing had made them feel uncomfortable. So increasingly in my adult life, I was learning that it's not true that if you make others feel comfortable, they will comfort you, they will support you or they'll make you feel safe. They might not. And you know, it's not that I didn't know that the people who benefit most from silence are those with privilege, the people that have the most to lose. I was writing a lot about race and class and gender by that time. I was vocal in championing others, but the thought of championing myself in my personal relationships made me uncomfortable. I think the breakthrough came in 2016. I just contributed an essay to a book called The Good Immigrant. It was a collection of stories and essays from people of colour like Riz Ahmed, Nish Kumar, Rennie Edo-Lodge and Nikesh Shukla. And no one had done anything like that before and it ended up being a really big success. I wrote a piece in that collection which was semi-autobiographical about a young brown girl on a sexual rampage waking up in the bed of a white man who had Union Jack flags all around the room. It's a comedy, that's always been my weapon of choice, but writing it, getting it published, going on book tour with it, it forced me to read it out loud. It forced me to read aloud about me, to speak up about me, not someone else, but me, or, you know, at the very least, a version of me. I read an article a few years ago where it talked about the ability to tolerate discomfort being something of a superpower, that people will put aside their biggest ambitions just to avoid a difficult conversation. I actually mentioned this to my mum. It was quite funny. She looked so unconvinced. We just spent that morning for like an hour in a high street chemist that will remain nameless for legal purposes. We're trying to get a refund on a lipstick. So my mum had bought it. It came wrapped in plastic. But when she got it home, it had all crumbled. She wanted a refund. The store didn't want to give it. They did all these tactics. They made her wait for ages to speak to a manager. They acted too busy to talk. They were just generally very rude. They wanted her to walk away. That was their plan. But from mum's point of view, it cost her a fiver. She doesn't have a fiver to spend on herself very often. So she was not backing down, even though this whole thing went on for so long that everyone in the shop was uncomfortable. And I think what my mum was trying to get at in her bemused face, in her smirk, is that when you don't have much money, when you don't have that financial privilege, that power, you're constantly having to choose the uncomfortable option, whether it's the night bus over an Uber or trying to get a refund on a lipstick. So actually, all those insecurities I had about my background being my shame, they weren't my shame. They were, in fact, my power, 
because I know how to tolerate discomfort. In fact, if you're listening to this and you're a woman, you're queer, you're working class, you're disabled, you're POC, you know how to tolerate discomfort too. So I figured it's about time that I started using this to serve me rather than others. Part of that was deprogramming, that kind of entrenched woman thing, and definitely that Asian woman thing where your own value is set by how well you make other people happy. And I needed to learn that the happiness of other fully grown adults is not my responsibility. I hope that doesn't sound too cold. I really don't mean it to be. Obviously, it's a balance. We need to be kind to each other. But I do think it's very easy to put your own well-being at risk in the pursuit of other people's happiness. Of course, when you realise there are limitations on the comfort that others can bring you and that your comfort is kind of your own job, you need to learn to self-comfort or self-care as people call it. If I'm honest, I'm still learning exactly how to self-care and how to self-comfort. I know that writing helps. I know that a hot bath does or a massive rave whenever those come back. And I'm learning to feel okay about sometimes feeling sad or angry, that it's no failure to feel those things, that we don't need to jump up and take action if we have to feel those things for just a brief second. But I'm still learning. Anyway, that's it. That's my thoughts on comfort. I hope you were sitting comfortably. I really, really do. But if you weren't, well, I'm afraid that's not really my problem. As I said, that's what I've learned. Thank you for listening. Comfort, a verb, to make someone feel better. Mm-hmm.